This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmood from Pona, Hawaii. This is your co-host Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is Ron Bocone. I am currently in Crystal Beach, Texas. Ron, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Let's start to get to know you a little bit. Could you, at a very high level, tell us who you are, what you do, where you're at? Yes. Um, currently, I am Director of Critical Facilities with OAC. Been in construction for almost 34 years, which is a much larger number than I had expected. Stumbled into telecommunications in 92 probably worked on my first data center around 97 and I've been doing it ever since. I've spent time on the owner side, about 20 years on the general contractor side, and it just started with OAC in August. And so we're owner's reps at our core construction management. Tell our audience a little bit about what does being an owner's rep mean? You know, it's, it's an interesting role because when you're when you're a contractor, certainly you want to build and do the right thing for your customer. You've got contracts. It's pretty cut and dried. Owner's representative can take on a lot of different roles, but at our core, we try to advocate for the customer. And there's also some companies that kind of resemble friends like accountants. That is not us. We try to dive in and solve problems and make sure our customers' projects get built. So that's philosophically who we are. There's obviously a lot more details to it, but advocating for your customer and being there all the time whenever they need you and, and they can't be there. You know, one of the things, one of the things we, we, we have tried to talk about over the course of the podcast is just the wide breadth of experience you can have and be part of our industry, you know, critical infrastructure industry. And, and the thing that's been underrepresented in, in, in our guests who have, you know, run the gamut of, you know, data center folks and computer guys and, and, you know, founder of the internet, the guy that started the whole thing and, and all that is construction, which is a huge part of it. And one that doesn't really, people don't recognize how much construction plays a role. Like none of this stuff does anything unless, you know, you build a building with an eye towards, you know, building a data center and, and all the infrastructure that goes into what, what are your thoughts on that transition from construction to, to data center uh, construction and all that? What, what are your thoughts on on, on how that is and whether, whether there's, you know, a gap in, in, in the uh, amount of folks in construction that come into our space or whether it's even well known that, you know, this is an area of construction that is, uh, that's growing. As with a lot of data center, a lot of different facets of the data center industry, it is not well known at all. I'm just some kid from Nebraska that got a construction management degree and stumbled into telecom, which led to data center. So in my case, it's probably better to be lucky than good, but you know, as with most of us, blessed to be in the market. But, you know, we, we need to do more to attract more talent to the industry. And that's top to bottom in the data center industry from tech to construction, massive labor shortage across the board. So I spend a lot of time looking at other industries, trying to attract people that have maybe some technical ability that's underutilized in oil and gas, for example, which is a dying business and semiconductors plenty busy on its own, but looking for other technical fields that we can bring people into the industry. Because if you've got data center experience, you're already busy. 
We'll get into that in just a bit. You have actually hit nail on the head as to what the initiator behind Nomad Futurist is. What I want to learn about you is you majored in construction management from Nebraska, University of Nebraska. What was the driving factor behind picking that as a major? And, you know, how did you really stumble into telecom and, and the data center space? What led you into that particular arena? Well, you know, coming out of high school, I did, did, did well in math and science and had a couple of teachers tell me you should be an engineer. So I go down to the University of Nebraska and start out as mechanical engineering and realize that two things. One, that I may not be smart enough to be a real engineer. Don't know if that's true or not, but never found out. And <laughs> just did not want to be in an office drawing lines and, and being an engineer. I wanted to get out and do something outside. And my brother was in construction. So we agreed I would try construction management for a semester, go down and work for him, worked in San Antonio, worked a summer down there and was kind of blessed to work next to some lifelong laborers. And I wasn't an intern. I was a laborer. Big difference there. And learned a lot from these folks and realized one physically my body can't endure a career of this so went back to school my gpa jumped a full grade point and just did two more summers down there and learned a lot about the industry started out building water treatment plants spent a year down in the north part of texas sherman area did a water treatment plant and then moved to tulsa and spent about five months there and a friend of mine that I'd worked with before said, we really need to check out this whole fiber optics thing and very nonspecific. Well, it turned out that a friend of mine from college that I was actually on the rowing team with was with the company he talked about. Then Kiwit Network Technologies turned into Metropolitan Fiber Systems. So early adopters of leaders in the fiber optic field, local loops, last mile type things. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm out in Los Angeles. So the mother of all culture shocks going from Tulsa to LA and I'm in the tech field. So, you know, early twenties living in Los Angeles, you know, just a year and a half removed from Nebraska, wondering what's going on. So just very fast, very simple, and just can't, still can't believe how I got into it. It's awesome. You hear that a lot. You hear a, a lot of people, particularly you know, of our generation in the space that kind of fell into it because there was no direct that that goes into it. But it sounds like, you know, given the, you know, experience with engineering and then you went to, you know, at becoming a laborer and then you went back and your grade point went up. Now, do you think that was because, you know, you kind of found a direct and then you found something that you might have been interested in? It, it, it absolutely was. It was, it was, I was scared that I didn't want to be a laborer. So there was certainly that, but no, absolutely <laughs> found an interest and certainly didn't know a thing about telecom or data centers or anything. As nobody but, else did back then, right? I mean, exactly. With everyone else. But it was, it was just to see things come out of the ground. There's a lot of reward that comes with seeing something get built at its core. It's just very rewarding construction in itself, regardless of what you're building. And then, you know, I'm a discovery channel person, always have been very lifelong self-directed learner. And so when I saw, you know, looked at fiber optics and what we're going to be building, even more exciting than water treatment plant work, which was still pretty cool when you learn the technology of how our water is treated, very underappreciated technologies and also very subsidized industry. But 
the the telecom just was so exciting and how fast the technology changed and it is still changing. Yeah, absolutely turned my brain on fire and just dove in and worked insane hours to understand what we were doing. So telecom to data centers, where, where did you find that big transition happen? So that, I worked. That's still a subset of the, the industry, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it was probably, so I was out in Los Angeles late in 92 and I answered this little three line abbreviated ad from the Denver Post and ended up going to Denver for this job. The company was called SP Telecom at the time, kind of a sleepy little builder of other people's networks. And I was the third person in the facilities group there. So mostly long haul facilities that, that the rail group would lay the fiber and the conduit and every 40 to 45 miles, we'd put in some kind of a small hut, similar, a little bigger than a, a cellular hut, but pretty simple stuff. And about six months later, the company decides we're going to build this nationwide network and turn the name to Quest Communications. So, you know, just again, a lot of luck involved, but great opportunity. Started putting together staffing plans on how are we going to roll out this network? And honestly, I had no clue, but I just started looking at things, break it down organically and where are we going to start? Where are we going to finish? geographically. And so just put together a staffing plan and they approved it. So then I'm like, okay, I need to start hiring a bunch of people. The downside is they didn't really give me the budget to hire anyone with experience. So I just looked at where did I come from and started calling the heads of certain departments, University of Nebraska's construction management. So the first half dozen people were Nebraska grads and moved around the country and hired friends of friends of friends. And the group ended up growing to, I think, 47 people at the peak over a three-year period. So we rolled out, I think the overall network build was close to 19,000 miles in about two and a half to three years. And we did, I think, 650 prefabricated regeneration and amp sites, lots of pops, lots of switches. And then the first true round of data centers. So we did, uh, I think the first one was Sunnyvale, California, Tequila, Burbank, Newark, and several other places. But even back then we were doing facilities in the 150,000 square foot range. That, now the power density, nothing compared to today, but so that was probably around 97, the first data center and just kept going from there. It's been a ball. So the thing is that many of those data centers still exist today, are still there. Oh, absolutely. There was, it was either Stack or Evoke or one of these companies that bought a bunch of existing assets. I could name three or four of them on the list that our group built in the late nineties, which is a little scary trying to make those things work for today, but it's still exciting that they're still there and still relevant. So in 97, when you, when you got done with all of this, was that like the moment that you said, okay, this is the future. I'm comfortable, confident that this is a growth industry that I want to be in. It absolutely was. I To be able to grow a group like that, but also see this technology continue to change and the headaches that went with it, the, the biggest headache we had back then was paralleling switch gear. Really wasn't, was barely even a thing, much less perfected. So I remember when we had five or six generators on one site and trying to get the paralleling switch gear to work. But, you know, you're, you're in uncharted territory, but that's the exciting part is doing things 
faster and bigger than they've ever been done. The largest network that had been built before was Sprint and that took, they did 15,000 miles in five years. We did larger in half that amount of time. And so it was, it was a lot of excitement, a lot of travel. And that's another one of the other things that I think back to one of the things that made us a success. If I'd been able to hire a bunch of people with experience, it may not have worked. And the reason I say that is when you're in your thirties and forties, you may say you have to travel. When you're in your twenties, you get to travel. And we were on the road five days a week, most of my folks, week after week after week, and they loved it. Now, when you're a little older, you you may not be as excited about that kind of thing. So the energy of that group was amazing. It was just so much fun to see people out there figuring things out and building things at warp speed and very few guardrails. So just figuring it out and trying not to do anything stupid. (laughs) Yeah, it's an amazing point that I don't think is made enough, which is that, you know, when you you bring in kind of new blood to an industry like this one, a lot of the things that, you know, all of us that have been doing this for so long take for granted are new and exciting. And that energy is, not only is it infectious, it, it creates incredible amounts of productivity that, that you can't that you can't pay for. And it's, it's yeah, and it and it does. The, and the diversity diversity means a lot of things, but diversity of thought is so important. I love when we bring someone in that's never never worked in a data center, and they'll start by saying, "This is probably a dumb question," and I would say at least half of those dumb questions lead to aha moments because. They aren't, they haven't been doing this for 20 some years like we have. And so they aren't, even if we're very forward thinking people, they have a very baseline view of all of that and come up with some really unique solutions to these that we weren't going to think of because we're kind of locked in to what we've done. It's, it's, I love bringing in people from other industries because you always get unique points of view. Ron, in your, when you look back, the, the 49 people that you brought on board with your organization that was Quest, how many of them are still in the industry? I think only two or three of them have gotten out of it. So, yeah, they've been, it's kind of a family tree. I look back to Metropolitan Fiber Systems and some of the folks that, that were at that group have gone on to be CEOs and chairmen. And so I'm a part of that little family tree. And then had our own little family tree at Quest and seeing people, there's been several have gone through places like CoreSight, several remained at Quest and are still there uh, through the CenturyLink merger. So a lot of those folks are still there. Um, trying to think of some of the other co-locations. Some have gone through Equinix, Switch and Data back in the day. A lot are on the general contractor side. So it's really fun. And I think, I think I was probably a pretty good judge of talent or again, luck, but I think the the last one that's been promoted, there's been six of them have gone on to be vice presidents or higher. So they're obviously smarter than me. So that's great. <laughs> that's the thing, though. You brought them. You, I think that it's another amazing. I mean, your experience is is so you know unbelievably relevant and and unique, and that that you can you know articulate it. Just draw a line between you know having known these these guys in college that are in like the construction field and at, at this time that you can drag them into the industry. It's like all the things we're trying to say, theoretically, you've done, like you've actually done it and, and you could point to all those folks and how they, 
and their careers have progressed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's another underreported thing. The relationships that you build, you know, the, you know, you, you, you work with someone and, and I think in general, people look at work, particularly kids, they come in and they look at work as something, you know, you, you, you do in order to pay the bills and then you move on. When in reality, those are these relationships that you've made, you know, turn these people's careers around and mm-hmm. you to thank for it. And those are, those are lifetime friendships. It, it really is. And it's, it feels kind of parental that kind of reward when you see your kid do well. I've got a stepdaughter that graduated college a couple of years. She somehow got into the into the tech world too. But seeing these folks that a lot of them right out of college, and there was also a couple, a uh, husband and wife that joined the group and had had some financial troubles. What, he was a lifelong farmer and got into this. And a lot of us from Nebraska thought, well, he's a hard worker. He'll figure it out. And he did. And the other started out as my admin. And three and a half years later, they're both senior project managers. You just give people a chance and they will find a way. They did. They just worked hard, had great people skills. And we had such a diverse group in terms of age. We had probably back in the late 90s, 30% of our group was female. And I think at one point, probably 35% what would be defined as minority. So, you know, we, I guess we were diverse before it was really a thing, but we were just, well, I I won't say I don't live down here, just getting out of the Minnesota cold, but, (laughs) but yeah, it's, I look back at those times and the stars absolutely aligned over that group. And it was just one of those sadly once in a lifetime experiences, but I'm sure glad I was a part of it. And it's, it's guided so much of what I've done ever since in how you look for the right mindset and the right culture, but not necessarily everyone thinking the same way. Because if everyone th- thinks the same way, you're going to get that same echo chamber of thoughts. So I love people to think different. I love people that call me out because I do say stupid things. I love it when people say they're stupid and let's learn from it. What can you teach me? Sure. Always, you always need to learn. The point that that experience is sometimes a double-edged sword. Like you might not want someone for a particular role that has a specific experience previously in that role is an incredibly unique way to look at and uh, and one that's not done enough in in this thing. Age, that's for sure. Well, and we we need to do more of that because, like we've we talked about earlier, is just we need more people from more industries to fill up the massive talent void. So let's get into that. As we started the conversation, you had mentioned about the talent gap that we've got the generational gap that's getting bigger and bigger, the tech, lack of technical resources in the the largest industry. When you brought on earlier part in your conversation at Quest, you, you had to come up with these 49 resources. How is it different today than it was 23, 24 years ago? Well, back then there weren't dozens of companies trying to do the same thing I am. So the, the war on talent Right now, if, if you have data center experience, you have probably five job offers in the next month if you want them. And back then, it was just finding good construction people with the right mindset. And you're going to teach them because there just weren't many people. A lot of people from the baby bells were looking, but I honestly did not want the, oh, here's the way we've always done it. Right. Drives me insane to this day. I wanted right. nothing to do with that. And so I wanted more just full that 
we're ready to work hard and let's go figure this stuff out. And I still look at that because I'm trying to bring more and more people in that are from other industries. So it's recognizing the learning mindset and anyone that thinks they don't need to learn are so, so wrong that you've got to be a lifelong learner and always figuring it out. I think I, I read something a while back that the average kid coming out of college is going to have four different careers, not, not jobs, but four different careers. So they better be flexible. And you know, what, what they're going to start out doing more than likely didn't exist when they started college. I don't know how much of that's true, but really kind of blows the mind to see how the, the tech industry and the world is changing so quickly now. Anyway, that's fine. Is there, is there a question that you ask? Is there something you look for on a resume when you're scouting talent? Is there some experience that you look for, some hobby that you look for that you ask in order to find, find out, you know, if, if they're going to be the right fit? You know, you, if I'm looking at a resume, if someone's built a bunch of office buildings, it's not always that exciting. But if they've got a mechanical or electrical degree, well, they've at least got that baseline knowledge. So I'll talk to them. But if they've done some things that are heavier in any technical discipline, it shows a little bit more of a technical inclination. So I, I definitely look for that. And, and certainly in certain industries, oil and gas really translates well. Water treatment plants really translate well. So anything with some specific technologies that will require you to learn. And I ask questions about how they approach construction because my brother taught me very early on, you know, we're, we're builders, we pour concrete, we erect steel, but he spent a lot of time and I did too, is understanding the technology, the treatment plant technology, because at some point that's going to help you understand how we need to build these plants. And then I translated that to data centers and I'm not a server expert, but you understand enough basics to understand why the engineers are designing a facility a certain way. And what can I do to help it evolve that design a little bit? On some levels, I say, oh, you're a dumb construction guy. But, you know, with our experience in putting these together in constructability, sometimes everyone puts their heads together and you can see that we all evolve together and come up with a better design. So just look for people that want to learn and that are curious. Natural curiosity is the key. Another way of saying understanding not just how you do it. Yeah. And why what is driving the data center business and that that what's driving the data center business has driven a lot of different things and my interest in the business hopefully predicting where it's going and being on the right side of that so what in your predictions where 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 is this industry headed over the next five to ten years oh goodness well it's it's got to be nothing but up and to the right like it already is it's the 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 issues we have now are going to be compounded which is the, the hardest part, the labor issue, and not just in management, but the craft workers in construction. It's the, the silver tsunami. The average construction worker is about my age. And so they're not more than five to 10 years from retiring if they've done well in their career. And, and there's not, we're not doing enough to attract people into the trades. Not every kid is a college kid and that's all right. And I think that that Europe has done a much better job of recognizing that and introducing people to the trades in middle school, junior high, high school at some point. Because when I was my last company, we were doing projects 
across Europe had a big data center in the Netherlands and a big data center in Finland. And even with the, uh, the ebbs and flows of the pandemic, they were getting trade workers from various countries. This country shuts down, this one opens up. We really didn't have labor problems. It's busy, but didn't really have a lot of trouble filling the labor wars here. It is an absolute dogfight for trade talent. You've got a lot of the big companies, big tech companies are offering incentives and sometimes they're competing with themselves. Like say someone's building a data center in Arizona and New Mexico. There's a, tra- a traveling trade worker will get their incentives from one project, stay there for the six months he's required and then move to Arizona with his fifth wheel and do the same thing there. So we just need to do better as a country in explaining to people the benefits of becoming a skilled tradesperson. If you look at a kid coming out of college, may have $100,000 in debt. Same kid go joins the electrical union right out of college, makes $40,000 a year to learn his job. Within five years, he could be making $100,000 and no college debt. And that's pretty compelling if you are not convinced that you're going to go to college and do well. How much of that is societal? Like the perception that, you know, kids all want to be in media or they all want to be lawyers and doctors and, and, and all that stuff, rather than, you know, people like appreciating the fact that not only are trades necessary and respectable, but mm-hmm. just a brilliant way to spend your time that's predictable and, and will, oh my God, stable. It, it is. It's 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 a great industry. You meet what a cast of characters you will meet on a job site. Oh, I've met some amazing people and some crazy people. It's awesome. And, you know, back to your point about it being a respectable industry, but it is societal. It's absolutely societal. You know, a lot of kids want to grow up to be video game programmers. Yeah, you and 15 million other people. <laughs> but, you know, the, the one of the places I learned the most about the industry was I spent one year in Tokyo and the industry in Tokyo construction is very respected over there. And my gut tells me no one explained it to me, but I think it was because they just had the heck bombed out of them in World War II and construction brought them from the ashes, metaphorically and, and literally speaking. So you would see laborers, electricians, all of the workers, I think we had at one point 400 on our site. We turned a seven-story parking garage into a data center. And these folks showed up in suits and then changed into their work uniforms. So each industry was color-coded, very, very organized, which I guess you would expect out of that, out of that country, but so respected. They made great money. They wore suits to the job site. And if you told people you were in construction, they really appreciated it. It was every bit as interesting as saying you were a computer programmer. Let's hope we can make those societal changes without uh, the bonfire. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely. But it, we need to change. And I've seen some great people, not only in the data center, but around construction that we're trying to show, educate people that this industry is out there, but more need to do it. It's got to be a much more focused effort or we're going to continue to have problems and they're going to get worse because we're going to build more data center. It needs to be like, if, I, if, I, if I'm putting together like a piece of Ikea furniture, like my kids are all inspired by like using the tools and what it looks like when it's done. That is like a little microcosm of what trains are. And the notion that that's somehow like that, 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 that fantasy element of it, that exciting part of it some, somehow gets lost 
through, I don't want to go on a rant against like Instagram and, and you know, jet flight and all that, all, all, all that stuff, which I'm sure is fine. But just that wonder that, that kids have about putting things together and the usefulness about participating in, the, the, in those trades within your own life. If you had the ability to, to fix the things around your house and build your own stuff, my God, you know, that, that, that is incredibly fulfilling. I, I, I simply do not understand how, as someone who has two left hands, I guess I shouldn't, I should, <laughs> uh, why, why, be, why, why it wouldn't be a respect thing. And uh, I hope that we can make it. Well, and, and when do they lose that? Because what kid doesn't like Legos? You know, right. they're not as cool anymore. You've probably seen the video of, of a baby playing with an iPad and trying to stretch and move things around and then gets on a magazine and can't figure out why the page doesn't work. <laughs> so I guess it can happen really early depending on the parenting. But my nieces and nephews love Legos, love putting stuff together. My my oldest nephew, my brother's son, he was an infant and you could see him looking at things just like my brother did on how does this go how does this come apart and how do I put it back together again? You could see it when he was in diapers. It was amazing. You put a contract in front of them just to just to make sure you you had access to it later on. Well and well now he wants to be a computer programmer. <laughs> but uh, you know, he also built his own his own video gaming computer at age 14. So he's got <laughs> well like you said, you know, the an average change of career is four years or four different careers within 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 the life of the individual. This industry is so big that you can potentially experience all those four careers within this industry. So yeah. it could be it could be real estate, it could be construction, it could be, you know, racking and stacking, and it could be financial guys. So the opportunities are endless within the data center industry. Let's have a quick discussion around the current state of affairs. We have been in COVID for, for a couple of years now. There is a significant supply chain issue. We've got a significant labor gap issue. Where is the construction industry today? And how do you guys expect to get out of not being able to build as fast as the computing demands have increased over the last couple of years? You know, I think the key has been and will be reinforced is prefabrication. I've been beating that drum for about 10 years, but the last three or four years, people have really grabbed it. And there's a few of the industry players really led that charge. But you look at people that may not want to go work on a job site or want to work in a more controlled environment. You can build a lot of the data center in a controlled environment in a factory. And people are going to the same place every day for work versus to a job site on the east side of town, the west side of town. And you're engaging with a separate labor pool. That's really the key for me. Creating the parallel paths in while you're building the actual building on site, that you can be building the electrical room on a metal skid somewhere else. Those parallel paths are great. But engaging in this, the other labor pool is really a key part of this. So prefabrication is the single biggest thing. People need to continue to find more ways to leverage it. And that that's going to be a huge part of the industry because people are not breaking down the door to get in construction. And I hope that changes, but it's not right now. So we need to find other sources of labor and other ways to build smarter and faster. And they're all lean construction techniques, but prefab is really the key. So we'll get that the relevance of Legos. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll get back to that in just a in, in just a quick second over here. With all the access real estate, especially with us working remotely now, majority of the workforce is remote now, and a lot of companies are actually enticing the workforce to to be remote. 
what does that mean to real estate and construction industry? There's plenty of real estate that's going to come available now that not all these people are actually going physically to an office space on a daily basis. Can these sites be revamped and used for edge and or, you know, upgrades in data center environments? I would certainly think so. Some some office buildings, the floor loading is so light that it would take a ton of work, but I think others can certainly be repurposed. I've actually heard of a lot of discussions of office buildings being repurposed for affordable housing, which I'm not sure how that will work. I don't know the, the economics of it, but there's going to be so much office space that is not filled. All those high rises that were in construction at the beginning of the pandemic, I would hate to be one of the financiers for those. It's a scary thought. So, but there's there's going to be a lot of offices, you know, maybe slab on grade that were intended for another use that can absolutely be turned into data centers, whether core data centers are more likely edge, as you said, because they're going to be right in the city. So probably the biggest question will be power. Okay. So I came across an article from you recently about the tech predictions for 2022. And one of the things that really stood out was you said 2022 is the year we are going to go near dear. Could you please expand on that just uh, for, for a quick second? Yeah. So I, I look at it from a power standpoint, but also from a sustainability standpoint, you could argue with good arguments that nuclear is not sustainable. Certainly the waste is as nasty a stuff as you could possibly find on earth, but it is zero carbon and we're going to need that to get us over the hump, ride us through until we really figure out sustainability, figure out renewable energy, the storage aspect of it. Once the storage is affordable, there's going to be solar and wind everywhere you can put it. So, but the storage, just the intermittency of renewables is so prohibitive. So you look at nuclear and not talking about the old nuclear where it takes 15 years to build a plant and the schedule is twice as long as originally proposed and the budget is twice as large as originally proposed. There's now what they call small nuclear reactors, modular nuclear reactors. So there was a couple in the article, but one is called in the US is called Nucor. And I think that they come in seven megawatt increments. Now I'm not saying that a data center provider is going to go buy a nuclear power plant because that's not their skill set. But your average enterprise, their a data center is not their skill set. So they could go and lease space from a colo. Well, that colocation provider or that hyperscale provider can sign a power purchase agreement like they're doing already with renewables with a nuclear provider. So my prediction is very much that there's progress being made toward that. I'd love to say that there's going to be a bunch of them, but I could see like Nucor is actually their design is approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the only one. So I could see a couple of people reaching out and and buying one of these, try to try to set up shop. You could very much see in rural Nebraska, rural Iowa, where some of these hyperscale campuses are being built and buying 50 acres next to it and putting a few of these modular nuclear reactors that do not take 15 years to build and having their own power source, eliminating the inefficiencies of the grid and having a zero carbon source of power for the foreseeable future. I think that is a win and that gives us time, kind of a bridge to get through to more more renewables, 
So we've got to make some progress. There's you know, I said, very specific goals by 2030. Conflict with the uh, like the environmental folks. I love the no carbon ad- ad element of it, and inherently want to say like the nuclear waste element of it is is going to hold them back. So I wonder how that's going to you know play out if if that's going to inhibit that kind of progress. Yeah, and it it certainly could, but if we don't make some progress in the next ten years, there's not going to be anything around in a thousand years when that nuclear waste starts to decay. I think the, the, the political issue is is always is always the one that inhibits progress, right? No one wants mm-hmm. to make decisions because they don't want to, you know, have their power um, taken away from them as a consequence of those decisions. So we yeah. end up, you know, fighting the same fight. So even if 2022 is the year we decide we have to go nuclear, no one's going to want to pull the trigger on it, I think. And that's that's the, that's the issue. The issue is we, we're really good at talking about problems. We're not actually good at doing anything about them. Uh, not in the same way we were you know, in the forties and fifties and, and, and uh, back then. You're, you're right. And I, it may be very aspirational. I may grade myself an F in December when I look back at it, but something needs to happen. And, you know, I think people need to understand better that these, these modular reactors, not these monster three mile island things are out there and we can do some very different things with them that we haven't done in the past. So probably aspirational, but I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> As far as the technology itself is concerned, do you think nuclear had some catastrophic challenges in the past? Do you think the we, we are past that as far as technology is concerned? Is it safe enough to be deployed at the skills that you're talking about? I think it is. I, from in the limited amount that I read and can comprehend, that it looks like the modular aspect of these They've got one, it's smaller. So that's that's gonna the scale of it alone will be better. But there's also a lot more fail safes and multiple layers of containment that make this, I believe, inherently safer. But I also believe the building block aspect that if a piece goes wrong, it won't be like three hundred megawatts worth of this stuff going bad. In 2019 and 20, you had predicted that 5G would change our lives, not in that year. Where do we stand today with your current prediction? I think that it will start to this year. So the first rollout of 5G was was not the millimeter wavelength, the stuff, the rocket ship of the 5G world. And the problem with millimeter wavelength is that it doesn't penetrate walls very well. It doesn't travel long distances. So it's very much line of sight. Where I live out just outside of Minneapolis was one of the Verizon test markets for 5G, but it was nowhere near my house. It was a very concentrated area downtown where you've got a very dense area of people. But there's another, what some people are calling the Goldilocks band, where it travels long distances and it's up to 10 times faster than what 4G was. And that's what's been ruled out very recently, the last couple of months by Verizon and I think AT&T, if I remember right. And it's supposed to be up to 10 times faster and it's been rolled out in most major cities. And although it's still not the same capacity as millimeter wavelength, it when you increase the speed tenfold, I think will it start it will start to enable some of those technologies that have been dreamt about but not implemented because there wasn't the speed of bandwidth out there to to handle what they need. Now I think IoT has the potential to take off even more in more rural areas. So I think there's a lot of technologies that will be fundamentally changed by this new 
ultra wideband or whatever the new brand names are for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've all heard about that stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so 2022, it could be the year where we start transitioning into a little bit faster internet. Absolutely. And I, it, it, there's so much pent up creativity that gets released when these technologies come to be. So Ron, you've had a great experience, a great career. Looking at where you're at today in your career and life, what would be some of the, the things that you have learned that have helped you be successful? And I think the single biggest one is to stay curious, to just always be interested why things work the way they do, what adjacent technologies are, are impacting that, and to just learn. You have to keep learning and the more te technology advances, the pace of change has accelerated and will only keep accelerating. So you need to be curious and you need to learn and keep learning. That's, that's absolutely the key. That's what we tell our daughter all the time. Just have to keep learning, figure out the technology you're working on next and look at what's coming. And I think, I think there's a, also an element of it, which is, you know, try to put your career trajectory in the direction of something you're actually interested in. You know, I, I, I think so many people just focus on, you know, how am I going to earn the most money and right. don't realize that, you know, there's a balance. I'm not saying follow your dream and go, you know, become a starving artist, but, you know, if you, if you focus a little bit and, and, and determine where your interests lie, you're inevitably going to be more curious about, you know, that aspect of, of what you're doing. And, and willing to put in more effort when it gets to be a 10 hour day. And there's, there's certainly a move, movement toward not working as much. And I'm all for that. But there's times where you need to buckle down. And when it's interesting, it's, I, I look at the same kind of things on TV as I do at work. And so when your job is like the Discovery Channel, it's really easy to work a very long day and still come away energized. So yeah, loving what you do and what you're interested in is awesome. Very good. Very well said. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today on this has been absolutely phenomenal. Great to see you and uh, look forward to catching up in person relatively soon here. Thank you so much for having me. It's It's been a pleasure and hopefully we can talk again at a conference sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Rod. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.